0: Welcome to the audio podcast of the weekly sermon of the First Presbyterian Church of Brooklyn. We continue our multi access worship, both online and in our recently renovated sanctuary. During the summer months, from July Fourth weekend through Labor Day weekend, our worship will be live Sunday morning at 10 a.m. We are live on firstchurchbrooklyn.org, as well as the church Facebook page at facebook.com/firstchurchbrooklyn, all one word, no spaces. Now, this week's message.
1: Whichever of these words are only the expression of my fickle heart, expose them for their foolishness. And whichever of these words have come from you, O God, let them find their mark. Let your spirit descend upon us now and reveal what we need to know. I spent my childhood anticipating the rapture. Like a thief in the night, the Bible says, and my church repeated so often. Like a thief in the night, Jesus would come back and rip all faithful people from their earthly tethers and take them to heaven. And in the movies we watched about that soon coming moment, people left their clothes behind. In some depictions, the clothes were just a pile on the ground, as one would expect if the body upon which they were hanging suddenly disappeared. In others, a directorial anxiety over depicting God as a messmaker led to a slight alteration. As the faithful were beamed to heaven, their clothes were left perfectly pressed and folded in a little square on the ground. Whatever theological aesthetic choice was made about the state of the clothes after the rapture, the narrative progression was always the same. Someone would discover that pile or that neat little square and realized that they'd been left behind. Children hear a water glass crash to the floor and run into the kitchen to discover their parents' clothes, but no parent. They'd been raptured. A parent hears their child's toothbrush clatter into the sink, and they peek in to discover a pile of clothes and no child. They'd been raptured. So as a kid, if I woke up from a nap in a daze or came home from school and couldn't find my parents immediately, my heart started racing. And if in my search for them I found a pile of clothes in their room, (laughs) I would just about lose my mind. The end of the world was a constant possibility, always just around the corner, and we took this with deadly seriousness. The little everyday moments of our lives were conditioned by it. We spent our time in the streets, preaching into bullhorns and passing out tracts to warn people that the end was nigh, and we lived as though it was. There's a lot to critique about this kind of thinking, relatively new as it is a 19th century innovation. But here's my central issue. The trouble with this kind of thinking is that it reduces the expansive, complex, and honestly beautiful theology of the world's end to a singular disastrous moment that splits the world into a binary between saved and damned. It's simple, it lacks nuance, it inspires fear and not hope. The first year Bible student who's learning about apocalyptic literature can tell you that for apocalyptic writers like many of those in scripture, time is not linear but cyclical. In Revelation 5, for example, Jesus is the lamb slain before the foundations of the earth were laid. Time is a flexible and contingent aspect of reality, responsive to the divine will, which is not bound by time, but uses time as a tool. The end of the world, then is not something that occurs at a singular moment in time but something that breaks into the present and transforms that reality into the eschaton the final thing the kingdom of god and further the end of the world has already occurred the death of christ is the end of the world the resurrection is the world beyond we are living in the time of both and the paradoxical space of Christ, who has been crucified and also raised. Christ is crucified over and over by cops and white supremacists and transphobes and imperialist war machinery, and each of these crucifixions is an apocalypse. The earth shudders and the mountains shatter into pieces, and the veil which covers over these violences with propaganda and perversion are torn apart by the cutting reality of the truth. The Greek word apocalypsis doesn't mean the end of the world. It means revealing. The apocalypse is the revelation of the world as it truly is. It's the laying bare of the violences that subjugate and crucify, exposing the death making world for what it really is. And here I want to read at length a poem by Devin Springer, a black trans non binary poet. It's called The Apocalypse. The apocalypse was Rhodesia, was Israel, was the United East India Company, was New Zealand and Australia, was Jim Crow and Jim Jones, was human chattel and slave patrols, was the Bureau of Indian Affairs, millionaires and billionaires. It was the 635,000 tons of bomb and napalm dropped on Korea, was the flavor aid 909 people drank in the Guyanese jungle, was the stripes on my ancestors' backs, Was the stripes on your ancestors' back? The cherry tree George Washington never cut down? Was protests turned photo ops? Was marches turned magazine covers? Was burning precincts turned representation? Was the gap in Madonna's teeth? Was the bullets in Robert Olson's gun? Was the smoke and rubble left at 6221 Osage Avenue? Was the wounds in Asada's back? Was the enemy of the sun found sitting in George Jackson's cell after his murder? The apocalypse was Marsha P. Johnson's body found floating in the Hudson River? Was Canada and was Germany? Was the Dutch, was the Portuguese? Was America's grip on Cuba and Venezuela and Hawaii and Puerto Rico and Guam and Iraq and Haiti and Indian residential schools? Was the Miami Gusanos cheering for Fidel's death? Was Tony McDade's last breath? Was Khalif Browder's last breath? Was Sandra Bland's last breath? Was Nat Turner's last breath? Was Malaysia Booker's last breath? Was Sankara and Lumumba's last breaths? Was Winnie and Mumia's prison cells? Was the taste of blood filling Fred Hampton's mouth before they dragged him into the hallways and left him lying in a pool of blood? The apocalypse was Trump. Was Obama and Biden and Hillary and Bernie? Was Eisenhower and Carter and Hoover and Cleveland and Washington and Taft and Lincoln? Was diamond, lithium, oil, cobalt, colton, gold, tungsten, and copper in the Congo? Was June 13, 1980, when Gregory Smith gave Walter Rodney the walkie-talkie? Was enslaved poems illegal to be written? Was Harriet Powers quilts? Was Dave the Potter's encrypted messages? Was the failure of the Maji Maji Rebellion? Was hijabs snatched and weddings bombed? Was 14-year-old James Docks Hater's remains never found? and you reading this poem not knowing his name. Was 14-year-old Giovanni Melton, snatched from life in the world not caring because no one ever cares when you're young, black, gay, and dead? Was human? Was internment camps? Was Blackwater mercenaries? Was Mao's last poem? Was Fanon's leukemia? Was Bob Marley's melanoma? Was Gamba Adisa's breast cancer? Was Eleanor Bumper's shotgunned against her her kitchen wall by rent marshals? Was the barracoon? The apocalypse was already here, it has been here, striking in plain sight. It is not a thief in the night we must watch for, nor an impending catastrophe we must manage, but an infestation so large, so vast in sheer numbers, so incalculable in the lives it's collected and audacious in the histories it's stolen, that we think it is yet to arrive. The apocalypse is not something we're waiting for not some singular moment in history that's yet to arrive. The apocalypse occurs with every crucifixion, revealing to us the depths of our waywardness, our antichrist, our commitments to death-making. And this places us in an interesting position. Paul calls, calls it insanity. In the text that we read this morning, Paul says that by worldly standards we are insane. He even says that we are dead. We have died to the world which makes only death and have already been raptured into the kingdom of God, where a different kind of being prevails, where a different kind of life is possible. We are the end of the world, within the world. We are the alternative to a status quo that values capital and whiteness and imperialist state-making. We are the criminals, as Christ was a criminal. We are enemies of the state, of all in power, as we are pursued and fugitive in our non-citizenry. At least that's what we're supposed to be. That's what we're called to. But oh, how we fail. How we maintain our commitments to the present order for the comforts it offers us at the cost of the invisibilized crucifixion of others. We reject the revelation of the apocalypse, pretending that the death is not occurring, that life can exist as it always has, that the world can turn and turn as it ever has, but this is bad faith. This is to reject the cross that we're asked to take up, to deny the death that we are commanded to die for the shadow of life that we believe we can grasp in this ephemeral present. This is a special sin of white people, as this crucifying world has been constructed in our favor, we buck at the demand to die to it. It's not only survivable for us, it's livable. We fail to see the urgency in its end. Frank Wilderson III, a former guerrilla fighter against apartheid in South Africa, and now a professor at UC Irvin, has written, quote, If we are to be honest with ourselves, we must admit that the Negro has been inviting whites as well as civil society's junior partners to dance to the dance of social death for hundreds of years, but few have wanted to learn the steps. They have been and remain today, even in the most anti-racist movements like the prison abolitionist movement, invested elsewhere. This is not to say that all oppositional political desire today is pro-white, but it is usually anti-black, meaning it will not dance with death. End quote. Are you invested elsewhere besides the kingdom of God? Are you committed to the perdurance of an anti-black, anti-worker, anti-woman, anti-queer world? Or are you a part of the revolutionary antithesis to the status quo, which might in fact involve death, as it has for so many who actually antagonize the powers and principalities of the world. But why would we fear death when we've already died? The Zapatistas, the indigenous revolutionaries of Chiapas, Mexico, share something instructive. They say, we are already dead, so what do we have to lose? People are already dying. Why should you not join in? Christ emptied himself and took on the form of a slave, scripture says, to die with us that a new world might be possible. George Jackson, a black revolutionary who was murdered by the state not unlike Christ was, was comfortable with death because, as a black freedom fighter, he felt he was already dead, his existence only vestibular to a final physical death. In responding to liberals who rejected revolution because so many black people would die in it, he writes, quote, we have always done most of the dying. The point is now to construct a situation where someone else will join in the dying. If it fails and we have to do most of the dying anyways, we're certainly no worse off than before. End quote. Why would we not join in the dying or learn the steps to the dance of death or take up our crosses? Of what value is a world in which children are gunned down in schools and African descended people continue to be enslaved and people with wombs are subjected to fascist sexual violence? We need repentance, which means to turn away from something, We need to repent of the world and turn towards something new. We need a conversion moment. We need a new way of seeing past the facade of the present and its shallow offerings. We need a means of tearing down the veil that separates us from the reality into which God is calling us. Remember Paul's Damascus Road experience. The earth shaking and the heavens, thundering and Christ appearing. Scales fall from his eyes and he can see what he could not see before. When Jesus asks the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. And Jesus says, flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but the Spirit. Over and over again, what we see right in front of us is not God's reality, but a human perversion. A desperate, hubristic attempt at definition and world-making, predicated on oppressive logics convenient to the powerful, to all those with an investment in the status quo, we have to find or rediscover this new way of being. The apocalyptic revealing of the world is also its ending. And this is not something to fear but to embrace. As the world feels unstable and fractured and perhaps unfamiliar, don't be afraid, which is the refrain of divine revelation, do not be afraid. Worlds come and go. Our God, the creator and destroyer of worlds, is loving us through the death throes and the pain of childbirth. As Paul says, creation groans with travail at the advent of a new world in the wake of the death of the old. The deaths we die as individuals or communities or peoples or worlds are not to be feared because resurrection is on the other side. A world beyond the present is the promise So we have nothing to fear. So friends, when the world feels as if it's crashing down around you, and everything feels disconnected and unmoored from any bearing, remember that you exist outside and beyond all of it. It touches you, I know, but it doesn't define you. Your reality is not this one, but something far deeper. You know the ghostly motions of this deathly world, but you have already died to it. You know heaven and hell. You have lost your naivete. Your very being is grounded in God, roots spread throughout the cosmos, anchored in a reality in which you are seen and known and loved beyond any deathly force this world might attempt against you. It is always at the most disruptive and destructive moments when hope is nearly or fully lost, that God moves most powerfully. This is a biblical pattern. After generations of confusion and depravity, God ends the world with an apocalyptic flood, only to begin again. After generations of slavery in Egypt, God ends the world in apocalyptic pestilence and fire and freedom as a means of beginning again. After centuries of waiting with a feeble hope, God ends the world by entering it in the form of a human, destabilizing the most basic rules, assumptions, and structures of reality and initiating a new beginning. After Christ's horrifying and hope-killing death, he is raised to apocalyptic glory, ending the world which was once defined by Adam and inaugurating a new one. Whatever commitments you have to the present, Attachments that inspire fear at the thought of their loss. Remember that change and even death are only apocalyptic transformations. The instability and insecurity you might feel, whether local and particular to you and your life, or global and related to your people, your, your country, your world, these are but channels through which God brings about more life than you could have formerly imagined. The apocalypse is a mode of being. It's our way of being. We bring it into every room that we enter. We lay bare the fictions and lies of this world for what they are, exposing the powers they feed, destabilizing every existing arrangement that does not practice the love of God or bear the fruit of the Spirit. And we do this by truth-telling, by joining in with the dying, by learning the steps to the dance of death, by taking up our crosses, by creating spaces in which we hope against hope and participate in a writhing paradox, a wriggling witness to otherwise possibilities, by refusing assimilation into the world's vapid hopes, its anemic imagination, by hoping as people who already live beyond death. I want to close with a poem by the Martinican poet and theorist Aime Cesaire. This is from Notes on the Return to My Native Land. For centuries, this country repeated that we are brute beasts, that the human heartbeat stops at the gates of the black world, that we are walking manure, hideously proffering the promise of tender cane and silky cotton, And they branded us with red-hot irons, and we slept in our waste, and we were sold in public squares, and a yard of English cloth and salted Irish meat were cheaper than us, and this country was quiet, calm, saying that the Spirit of God was was in his acts. Excuse me. Looks like I don't have the final page. It's Perfect second, I'll get it off my phone. This country was quiet, calm, saying that the Spirit of God was in his acts. We, the vomit of the slave ship, we hunted meat of Calabar, plug your ears. We, stuffed to bursting with the swell, with squalls and inhaled fog, forgive me, partner whirlwind. I hear rising from the hold chained curses, Gasps of the dying, the sound of one who is thrown into the sea, the baying of a woman giving birth, the scrape of fingernails advancing on throats, the sneer of the whip, the prying vermin among weary bodies. What can I do? I must begin. Begin what? The only thing that's worth beginning, the end of the
0: world, no less. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust you are fed as well as challenged by the content. This audio archive supplements a video library of the entire service. The video, along with music from our internationally recognized gospel choir, is available on firstchurchbrooklyn.org. We provide multi-access worship options, both in person and online, Sunday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time during the summer, from July 4th weekend through Labor Day weekend. We are live in the sanctuary as well as firstchurchbrooklyn.org and the church Facebook page at facebook.com slash firstchurchbrooklyn. All one word, no spaces. Visit firstchurchbrooklyn.org for more information on both online and in-person worship. Remember that now, as always, you are loved.